0: OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Peter Horn, welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Maybe to kind of kick things off to give everybody a, a little bit more of a broad view strokes of who Peter is, Maybe you can give us a little bit of a background. I know we've chatted a couple times, so I'm excited to really dig in more, but maybe you can give us an idea of kind of where, you, where you've where you started and uh, where you've kind of come through uh, in your career of, of of working and everything else, just to give everybody a, a bright light onto what you've been up to.
1: Sure, and uh, I guess I'd start by saying, uh, maybe my career has been sort of this intersection of luck and good decisions. Yeah, uh, you know, like so many things, right? So luck in that I chose to go to college at the University of Santa Clara in the early 1970s. And it was a good school, but it was based on where I could get financial aid. It was sort of how I could be as far away from my parents as possible and remain within the state of California because I had a scholarship. Uh, So went to Santa Clara, but simultaneously that became the early days of the rise of Silicon Valley. So the phrase Silicon Valley was invented by Don Heffler during the time that I was at Santa Clara. Uh, And so then it was like, huh, all this interesting stuff is going on, maybe I ought to focus on that. And so by the late 1970s, I'd sort of decided that, yeah, I really was gonna take a good hard run at working around technology. So uh, obscure claim to fame. I wrote the owner's manual for Pong in 1975. Uh I sold kit computers on the floor of the second West Coast Computer Fair in San Jose in 77. Uh marketed cell phones in the early 80s. Uh when I was running the Microsoft ad account worldwide for Oklahoma Mather, I uh helped launch Windows and Windows apps and Office and all that stuff. Uh so I was really in advertising for the first 10, 12 years of my career. Then I spent most of the 90s in uh traditional publishing. I was the uh, head of major account sales for International Data Group. And we operated in 77 countries around the world, which was actually a really interesting time to be there because that coincided with the rise of the internet, the rise of satellite television. And so companies had to really confront a lot of issues around, you know, how do I manage my brand across borders? Uh, you know, And previously they'd done things like, oh, we'll launch in the US in May, we'll launch in UK, France, Britain in October, we'll do rest of world sometime next year. And now they suddenly had to confront the fact that we were all rest of world and whatever they said in one market became immediately known everywhere. And so, and if, if I say, oh, I'm launching this new product and it's not available, they say, you know what? I'm gonna sit this one out. I'll wait until you've got the new product available. And so uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff where suddenly with this kind of, which was kind of the first big step towards transparency, uh, and it really, uh, it created both opportunities and challenges. And then since 2000, which shockingly is now 20 years, I've been focused on the internet. Um, you know, again, um, perfect timing. In the spring of 2000, I quit a steady job and uh, started a, a venture backed web media startup company. Uh, and went right into the teeth of the first nuclear winter of the internet. Uh, but then, yeah, actually, as I, say, I hit the CEO trifecta, survived, got it profitable, and walked out the door to my own power, uh, which puts me in the top 5% of the class anyway. Uh, went back to New York, did a turnaround on about.com, sold that to the New York Times, uh, did a couple of various startups and deals here, then ran all the media and advertising properties for IAC, uh, Barry Diller's company, Inter- Interactive Corp., which is where it's like City Search, Evite, Ask Jeeves. Uh, and uh, then, really, the last 10 years, I've been doing a combination of consulting, board work, and uh, investing. And uh, most notably, I've been on the board of Lending Tree as we've taken that from a sub hundred million dollar market cap when we spun out of IAC in 2008 to about a four billion dollar market cap today. So, wow. n- number summary two billion dollars in transactions on the sell side, a billion dollars in transactions on the buy side, and about four billion in public market value creation.
0: That's amazing. We should just uh, we should just open up a class and we should just sit around and yeah. listen to what you've got to tell us because for, uh, for everything you've shared right now, I'm already beyond intrigued. Um, I'm a huge fan of Pong back in the day, so I'm even more impressed that you uh, created the manual for it.
1: Like we needed, go to the right, go to the left. <laughs>
0: So basically it was the whole use case scenario on how to operate Pong in the most simplest form ever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and, and, you know, what's interesting about that though, and it really, it does speak to some of the issues facing early stage investing. Um, So I, I say I've been involved in five or six technology revolutions, personal computers, cell phones, graphical user interface, the internet, mobile, and in all of them, with the exception of Pong, People could say they adamantly did not want whatever it was we were selling. You know, I've I've still got a focus group report I did for Commodore for the Commodore PET, the personal electronic translator, 1977, first personal computer, where people said, "I can't imagine needing a personal computer. What would I want that for?" Um, you know, when we launched cell phones in the early 80s, people were like, uh, "You know, not interested at all. I don't need one of those." Um, you know, maybe if I was a big time lawyer or a sales guy, I could use one, but I'm an average person. I need a cell phone. You know, uh, we asked people, do you want to be able to see on your screen, what you're going to see on the paper? They said, no, no, no. Cause I got word perfect. I want to three. I don't need that stuff. Um, and, and so where that really goes to is the challenges that particularly entrepreneurs are facing where they're trying to, you know, do something really new and they're trying to convince investors that, you know, that people will actually buy this. And you go out and ask people, do you want this? And they're gonna say no. And so it's that sort of, you know, how do you bridge that, that? How do you convince investors to sort of share your vision of, you know, how you're gonna change the world? And that, that is like one of the most, like, for like I said, for genuinely innovative stuff, that's one of the biggest challenges.
0: Oh, 100% agree with that. It, it, you're, um, when you start to shift and everybody's looking for the most innovative, biggest change, they think that this is the way to go. The problem is the big elephant in the room is change. Yeah. People are very afraid of change. Pain- change is actually one of the highest stress causes because, um, and I was having this call today with a, with a company and they were building this platform. It's massive. And it was interesting because at the end of it all, I said, what is the one little thing you're solving? Because right now, it just seems like this big. And by the time everybody gets through this, they're gonna be so stressed that if you just take a little nibble and grow with them, people will accept that better. Yep. And yep. Uh, there's um, a Well, it's finding to- that one
1: problem that people desperately need to solve. Um, exactly. And uh, I'll, sort of, I'll, I'll call it a quick timeout for a, a, a story. Uh, which is both heartening and terrifying for entrepreneurs. Um, And it's that when Airbnb came out of the Y Combinator incubator, nobody would vote for them. Nobody would invest in them. They were like, oh, no, this is stupid. This will never happen. Really? Yeah. And so, you know, um, it's, and so you say on the one hand, it's like, oh, my God. It's like if if Airbnb couldn't get anybody to see, you know, what am I going to do? On the other hand, it's like, well, guess what? Everybody said no, and they went ahead anyway, and they became successful. For sure. But, but, but it, that but that there's still of that, that gap, though, of explain to people what you're going to do and
0: why they should believe you're going to do it. Uh, exactly. And I think there's a really interesting trend that's actually happened now is that since that time, um, entrepreneurship was also a tough um, space to get into, and everybody believed it. Big business was, uh, I'm not going to have you as a customer because you're going to fail. So, you take that 10, 15 years ago, even when I went on my own to, to where it is today, risk has changed so much and the sure. demand for innovation and new has shifted a lot. So I think if you took what's going on now, more people are jumping onto uh, almost idiotic ideas because they don't want to the, the fear of losing out, the mofo or FOMO and so all that hello. stuff. They they don't want to lose that. So now the ability to grasp onto things that aren't really functional and and maybe properly embedded to be a business or a startup, people are jumping into because they're afraid, oh, if I don't do this, it's not right. I better sign up. I better be part of it. Yeah. Interesting that you say that, that change back then was, I think it wasn't adaptive and it wasn't as fast as it is today. And I, I think now we're starting to see that, tech is getting in and failing fast just because they're not getting the next investment because they're not finding attraction, they're not finding the usership and they might be five years before time, they might be 10 years ahead of time uh, yep. because the change hasn't got there but change is rapid, uh, rapidly occurring.
1: Yeah, um, but and I guess I'm focused on kind of the narrow thing we're talking about which is entrepreneurs, early stage companies going out to raise money and, you know, especially, you know, angels and seed fund stage. Um, and there, that, that's where, you know, uh, you know, I think, and they sort of, I'll say there's kind of the Silicon Valley exceptions. You know, I was just looking at a company called Neva, uh, which is founded by two ex-Google guys, and they're a long way from a product. They raised $37.5 million. Um, and, wow. But, but, you know, they're not like you and me um you know it's like you know um i used to one of the partners at one of the first VC firms i dealt with was a former nba player and he'd say you know why basketball players date supermodels no john why because they can <laughs> and the same thing is true. like if you're a former early employee at google an svp at google there to a startup so yeah give me 50 million bucks and people go yes thank you so so you know you know why do they do it? Because they can. But, but that doesn't mean that most people have the ability to go out and say, oh, give me 10 million bucks or five million bucks. It's like most people have got to go and sweat to raise the first half a million and million. And, 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 and that's really, I think what, what sort of like in the real world, that's actually the challenge, right? Cause it's like, okay, if I can get into market, if I can get a product out there, I can start to get some proof points, then I can start to put up some numbers and this concept I had that sounded crazy, I could demonstrate that people really want it. But it's that sort of, it's the first million bucks of revenue, it's the first million bucks of funding is, is where kind of a lot of stuff falls on the floor.
0: For sure, and you're, I completely agree with that. There's also raising your, your, the hardest is raising your first million and getting your first million in revenue seems to be a bit easier, but then the next lotman is even harder. Uh, you've got some traction, but how do you get the expansion? So there's yep. a lot of moving pieces inside of this and um, so I, I think one of the things I want to kind of um, backtrack a little bit to was um, what got you in, interested in in actually investing versus working with these companies. You were working in the space, you were doing a lot of innovative things of course. Uh, you were in Silicon Valley, you were leading up some of these top uh, products that were coming to market. Yep. What changed you over from being kind of dug into that market in deciding you wanted to invest?
1: Uh, and, and I'll say most of what I know about investing comes from scar tissue. It's like, it's all the stuff I did wrong on the way. Um, and I'll say, uh, in I had worked with a lot of VCs over time. And then a couple of them decided that in the 2006, 7, 8 timeframe, this notion of, Hey, we can do these kind of lightweight companies, and we can flip them. So let's like raise only a little bit of money, eighteen twenty-four months, sell it for thirty million bucks. We're going to get rich. Um, no, I mean it sounded really good, and the guys that were that were proposing this were smart. And, and like this was like companies like, for example, if you remember Clout with a K, uh, that was one of the companies. So like so, it was a lot of you know. It's like conceptually, it's like yeah, this ought to work. Um, And it never worked out as well as we thought it was would. You know, um, the things I I learned is that you've got to. There's no easy. It's like you may get lucky and there's an easy flip. Yeah, we just had one of those with a company called The Wild up here in Portland, which is a VR company. Uh, Just so happened that they basically got to first product, and and somebody said, "Oh, that's exactly what we need." Thank you. We want to buy it. But you know that happens three times in ten years. Uh, in uh, there's a, a, a version of like a bumper sticker in early stage investing, which is that lemons ripen much more quickly than peaches. Um, and it's just the notion that, you know, the ones that are gonna fail, they tend to fail fast and ugly. Uh, and the ones that like, so one of my best companies, I've been in for seven years now. Um, and, you know, and, and in fact, another company I've been in for 10 years. And they've been good investments, they're good companies, but you know, 10 years later, we're we're still running them. Um, And and so I think, so so I was wrong about this notion that early stage investing was about quick flips.
0: Um, um, And that's some good learning. I'm sorry? That's some good learning. It's It's a, I think everybody goes in with how they want to envision investing because they come in it from so many different angles. And you were able to go in with this approach that maybe you could buy and sell quickly realizing that this is more of a long-term play and yeah. you're coming in at the bottom which is really starting off really yeah. early that there's a long-term long-term play that could happen here and if you try and speed things up it may not always work like you said three out of yeah. you know three and ten years it may but th- there is a little bit more of a longer game so how do you start to build Companies in a portfolio that fit into different time sequences. You know what? Maybe I could see this one out in three, this one out in five, and this one out in 10, and then I can balance my portfolio.
1: Yeah, and see, and that's actually one of the things I wanted to chat about, which is that mindset matters in this environment. Uh, That in the pandemic with the lockdown and incarceration, um, it's hard to raise, like, it's hard to do a big round, particularly if you didn't start it before. So I've seen, so I'm in three venture funds where I'm on the like investment committee and we do direct investing. And I've seen a number of of follow on rounds. So, So the mindset of VCs during this period, the first thing was, okay, freeze, don't do anything. Second thing was triage on the current portfolio and the and the, the kind of the simplistic way to think about it is red, yellow, green. That uh, they go through their current portfolio and go, okay, who's going to be helped by this? Who is neutral, and we'll see, and who's screwed? Uh, and they just looked at it and they said, okay. Uh, and so the first priority for investable capital became, I'll say, portfolio maintenance and support. Uh, yeah, so the first, the first thing is, okay, how much of our capital do we need to get our promising companies through this pandemic? And the, you know, one of the maxims is basically don't reinforce failure. And so if you've got companies that are struggling anyway and it doesn't look like, you know, this is like we're treading water and then we're tossing them a boat anchor. Um, it's like, okay, just let it go. It's like, you, don't, don't spend more money propping up a company that's gonna fail anyway. Uh, but on the other hand, say, okay, you know, um, one of my companies, we got this exercise of, okay, uh, for a stage, stage one was we cut cost and we got to our cash flow break even. And stage two was, okay, now that we've proven we're break even to profitable, how can we accelerate out of this downturn and go, come out of it stronger than we went into it? Uh, and, and so we're in the middle of that now. But but that's sort of the kind of mindset of most of the investors I've talked to. Uh, So things that are on the negative side, uh, concerns about uh, sale process. And so folks that have come in and said, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this enterprise sale. And we're like, okay, so how is it going to work to, you know, push a new enterprise sale through when people are working remotely, when, uh, you know... um, and in certain categories, right? I'm, I'm talking to, I was being pitched by a company that's in the travel space. And I'm like, okay, well, we've already lost 2020. I said, suppose we lose 2021 as well. I said, you know, what ha- you know, what happens to your business if 2021 is still locked down? Uh, and, and so there are certain categories that are, are, are a greater concern. But what's interesting is, this is sort of the anti flip mentality this is a good time to go in with a business plan and say, hey, you know what? I can go in with a, a lean team and a moderate raise. And while we're on timeout anyway, I can build. I said, so I'm going to go build my product. Uh, and, and when we come out of this in six months, 12 months, 18 months, I'll be ready to go to market. And so, so I can make a little bit of money last a long time. I'm going to code my ass off. I'm going to build something. And when we come out the other side, you know, then we'll we'll go raise a bigger round for marketing and sales and acceleration. Uh, And and so that kind of a mindset I'm finding to be attractive to investors right now. The, you know, tight team, talented people, and just focus on and build, build product. Um, The other thing, the other uh, theory I've I've invested against is Folk, markets that are open to change because of the pandemic. And sometimes it's counterintuitive. So, you know, small business has gotten hammered. But uh, a company I invested in recently called Candid Wholesale, I invested both directly and via Cascade Angels, uh, is they're in the brand to retailer e-commerce segment. and And the premise was that because of all the challenges that retail has been facing with all the shutdowns and the, that now these retailers who before were like, Hey, I'm up to my eyeballs. I'm busy. I got, I don't have time to change. Are now going, okay, what do I need to do to, to survive this? And so we've actually had a lot, a tremendous amount of interest, uh, from reach from small retailers because they're going, okay, I, I I'm in trouble. I've got to change. I gotta do something. Uh, interestingly, uh, through one of my companies, business.com, which is a website, that helps big companies market to SMBs. Uh, reta- restaurant retail point of sale systems has actually been a really, really strong category. And it would frankly surprise the hell out of us because we're like, what? It's like, isn't that a dead category? But again, all of a sudden restaurants are having to go, hey, um, the, we've got to figure out how to do touchless sales. We've got to figure out how to, you know, do remote ordering. And suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, people walking in, standing in line, handing me cash. That's not going to work. And so, so, so that's also what you look for is, OK, what's the, what are the changes that you we know, have? What, what, what changes are being forced on the market? we are probably got to look for new solutions. And those are attractive for looking at right now.
0: Uh, those are great. And I think there's, uh, there's some adaptability that's going to happen inside of this as well, right? Over the next three to four months, as we kind of hopefully move our way out, people are, you're going to start to see, are people really shifting to um, this stay at home model forever? Or are they going to shift it back and you're going to start to see the, you know, maybe there's six feet, but then in a week there's going to be one foot, like everybody's going to go back to what they know. So there's this real fear of, do I have to shift so much that I'm changing everything, changing, building new things, putting my store up a different way if everybody's going to bounce back to the way they were shopping, commuting and walking around? So I think there's that risk and how far do you take it before actually things open back up again?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, if you look at the the current virus data, we're nowhere as close to opening back up again, or at least we're gonna probably lock down before we open back up again. And, you know, at one of my companies, uh, we're talk, you know, I was talking to the CEOs where I said, well, when are you going to reopen, do you think? When you open the office? He goes, well, we were hoping for August, but the employees were afraid because they're in office towers in New York and Portland. And they said, you know, if we had our own building, ground floor, park in the parking lot, walk through the front entrance, walk to your desk, that's one thing. But, you know, our guys, you know, they probably got to come in on a light rail system. They've got to, or, you know, uh, go up in an elevator that we don't control. They've got, you know, um, and so too many said, variables. Oh, realistically, he's I don't know if we're reopening this year.
0: Wow. Well, it's interesting. The, the environment is going to dictate a lot of how the investment community is working and the companies that they are investing in there. I think you're right. There's going to be some further outplays that people can invest in by building a team, building a structure, taking their time, being in the background, building it up so that they're ready to launch when all of this is kind of um, downsized. But the, that just creates an opportunity to maybe take over some of the depleted assets or depleted areas that aren't going to get attention right now. Sure. Um, and then, of course, there's the other f- factors of the areas that are getting a lot of upside, right? Like Zoom and all these places where uh, people are investing, they're going after it because they say, hey, if this is going to be the new norm, we need to be fitting inside of here. So I guess but telehealth,
1: telemedicine, everybody wants to get into um, anything that involve, that enhances you know, if you think about it, in some ways, Zoom is a pretty blunt instrument. I mean, you know, we use it and it's great, but we also all start starting to build this like long list of, gee, you know, I really wish it would do this, or boy, it's, and, and in a sense, they may be, the they, they could be the, you know, the MySpace of social networking, right? oh, sure. that's what it looks like. And then Facebook comes in behind and goes, okay, wait, here's what it's really supposed to be. Um, you know, and, but I I think, you know, I hear a lot of folks say, you know what, I'm not rushing to get on airplanes. Uh, I'm hearing clients on the buy side going, Hey, you know what? You don't actually have to come out here. We we can, we can do this kind of a meeting. It'll be just fine. Thanks. No, that's,
0: and that's exciting because the world's needed a little bit of a pause and a little bit of shift and a little bit of change here and there. And I think uh, those are all hitting everybody quite quickly so yeah uh, it's good to see that uh, people are taking their health into consideration but uh, also realizing the business still works on video and that you can still conduct things and move it forward yep. um, now you you kind of jumped in on how you started investing and how this is all unfolded now is there a part that really drives you that gets you excited about it and I can tell you're excited and you're passionate about startups in the community which is awesome and it, but is there something that really is your favorite part of investing that you can uh, that you can talk to? Uh,
1: yeah it's working with entrepreneurs is it, actually really it, it sounds dumb and obvious but um, you do this because you want to help entrepreneurs realize their vision. Um, you know and, and you know in your questions you asked about sort of the financial side of it versus the, uh, so, you know mentoring coaching side of it uh, you know I've got some where it's like no, I just wrote a check and you know ready to get work but in a lot of cases it's you know being a sounding board uh, helping them to think through the strategy because you know being a small business CEO is a pretty lonely job a lot of the time and you know and and sometimes like you, you gotta have somebody you can say okay I've had this like scary thought Uh you know, uh, this, you know, this may be wrong, or, you know, uh, what happens if this happens? You know, and they can't talk to their team about it. And also sometimes, even later on, if they get like a, a professional VC, and not that I'm not a professional VC, but, but they're sort of the classic Silicon Valley VC, and the CEO, want to I want to talk to them. Uh, you know, because I always say, it's like, Silicon Valley BCs, they always they always say, Oh yeah, it's like they tell all sorts of lies on their website, right on the front page. First one is, oh, you know, we don't care stage or industry. We're just looking for great people with great ideas. We're stage but then if you actually look, you say okay, well, where do you actually invest? It's like, no, they invest in a very specific stage, a couple of industries, a couple of patterns. It's like um, but one of the other things, you know, they'll say is, and we care about our companies. We are here to support. And I said, "Yeah, but but Silicon Valley VCs care about their companies the way a poker player cares about his cards. <laughs> if I think they're going to make me money, I keep them and I invest behind them. If I think they're not going to make me money, I throw them away. And you know, and, and so as a CEO, you just have to. It's, it's not inherently a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you don't understand that's the way the game is played. Hmm. And, and so you know, so, so you know." E- it's important for early stage CEOs to, to develop a group of people they trust. And, yeah, you know, we met through Ash uh, Carbofrucian from WatchMojo. And so for some like 10 years, you know, he's been sort of on the back phone, or I've been on the other end of the back phone and it's like, Oh wait, somebody called They, they want to acquire me. You think I should sell? Or, Oh, this, what do you think? And, you know, and he knows, and he's a fabulous entrepreneur and a great guy, but he, but what he counts on me is they all call the no mercy, no malice conversation. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, okay, here's what I'm really thinking, and here's what I'm really afraid of, and what do you think? And I'll disagree with them, I'll, I'll say yes, you're right, you're wrong, whatever. But it's a just a no-holds-barred conversation. And early-stage CEOs need to cultivate people that they trust and that they, they count on to look out for them and their interest. Because their interest could be different than the employee's interest, it could be different than their investor's interest, it could be, inter- it's like, and and they gotta have somebody that they can talk to and and honestly say, okay, here's what I'm thinking.
0: I like that and and uh, the no mercy, no malice conversation. And uh, there's been a lot of times in the, uh, over the last decade or two where um, different entrepreneurs or different businesses will come in and they'll say, How do I really infiltrate this community of entrepreneurs and startups and get them to want to talk to me and open up and share things? And I'm always kind of about, you got to have a balance of value. i got to be able to provide you with something and provide something back to me. And then we've got an equal balance in a relationship. And when you talk about a VC, they're providing the financial stability to run your company. So it's hard to go back and tell them, hey, I'm thinking about taking the company in a whole different direction. I know we're making (laughs) money, but I'm going to go this way. It kind of sets them off. But if you have somebody that can be on the outside and you're exchanging value through ideas and concepts, it is a good way of um, testing the water, but also learning on what their perspective is because they're not biased to their bank account. They're biased to helping you succeed. And I think a lot of the time an entrepreneur feels the fear of who can I really tell something to and they ball it up and then you get this bigger thing, which is now becoming a little bit more prevalent, which is mental health issues and things like that. So. I really do agree and respect that you know, you got to work with that entrepreneur to give them the concept that they got to find a few people to trust and they got a few people that they can bounce ideas off of and that goes across inside their business, outside their business and advisors and et cetera. So it's really important these days I think to, to get as much um, uh, bonding if you can with a yep. few people that are gonna help you. Yep. And I love the fact that you said that it's someone else that has your back. It, it, it that is so important that you you have no idea as an entrepreneur when you think you're in this tower by yourself that if you've got somebody that's down there trying to find a trampoline for you to bounce off <laughs>
1: that
0: uh, you know that they're going to come with it right and i think the fear is that i'm here alone so i i, I like that
1: no and that's actually and you're right there, there's actually been a lot of studies about sort of <clears throat> mental health issues among founders for that reason um <clears throat> They feel like they're by themselves and, you know, and, and there are point where any sane person wants to run screaming for the door. And you, and so, and if you're by yourself, it just, you get t- totally in a ball, you know, you don't want to go to your spouse and say, honey, I think I'm going to lose the whole business and we're going to be bankrupt and living in the car. <laughs> it's like, you know, you put that conversation off. Um, you know, you, you don't want to go to your investors right away and say, Hey, I'm afraid this product won't work. Uh, or at least you want to be able to rehearse the conversation before you talk to them.
0: Agreed. But I like the fact that you're opening the door and, and that you're, you're allowing and wanting that to occur. That's really beneficial to the entrepreneur for sure. Yeah. Um, you've uh, you've shared a bunch of different stories kind of along the way in your career and, and how you've been working with startups. And is there any uh, real heartfelt story that you can really say that, you know, what this, this startup did X, they hit the wall. Uh, we came in, we did a brainstorm, and man, they really turned it around, and this company's really gone this way, uh, but there's been some real heartfelt story that you could share that really kind of depicts the the lifestyle of an entrepreneur and where they start and where they kind of go to. Uh,
1: yeah. Um, so, one of my all-time favorite entrepreneurs is a fellow named Rafat Ali, uh, and he founded Paid Content back in the day, sold that to The Guardian. Uh, like, like a lot of acquisitions, you know, it, you know, it sort of doesn't always work. It, the, the folks that are acquired, they like cashing the check, but they don't enjoy working for the big company that just bought them. And so he left that and he was going through a lot of personal stuff and we were talking about what do you want to do next? And he sort of had a notion for a travel company, a, a travel news company. And it was like, okay, well tell you what, let's, he was I knew he was gonna go walkabout for a while. And so we sat down and concepted it and said, tell you what, let's hold this. And when you come back from your walkabout, then we'll start again. And so came back and we went to a vegan tea house in Manhattan and said, okay, you know, what are we gonna call out? What are we gonna do? And I wrote about a $25,000 check on the spot, which is his first money. Uh, and it ultimately has become, you know, in spite of all the chaos of the travel industry, it's become over six or seven years, one of the most trusted and respected sources of news information about the travel industry. Uh, conferences, and now of course, we're going through another, another phase of reinvention because of everything there. But, uh, and what was interesting was we started out, and this is in a sense several years ago, we said, oh, we gotta be a researcher, of big data company. And so we're gonna raise uh, a million bucks now, and then we'll come back, we'll raise a bigger round, and we'll get into data. And it turned out that we never could raise a bigger round. Uh, And and one of the, something that's important for entrepreneurs to understand is that rightly or wrongly, uh, venture investing is a fashion business. And, you know, it's it's, it's, it's like the movies, right? Oh, we can't do a cowboy movie. Everybody hates cowboy movies. Then a cowboy movie comes along. It's like, oh wait, where's my cowboy movie? Give me more cowboy movies until they basically just squeeze all the juice out of it. And then it's like, all right, give me a horror movie. Um, but VCs tend to do the same thing. It's like when when you know a Sequoia invests in a certain category, everybody else goes, oh my god, where's my one like that? And the other hand, when they say, you know, we're not doing media investments anymore, or you know, oh, uh, big data, that was last year. Uh, when you're not sort of on trend with VC investment, it gets really, really hard to So what happened was uh, we, and I've had this a couple of times where it's like, it's a categorical problem. It's like, uh, you know, the business was hitting its numbers, but it's like, oh yeah, yeah, we're not doing media investments. So with Skift, what we did is we actually just hunkered down. Those of us that are already around the table wrote bigger, wrote more checks and said, no, we're fine, we still believe in you. And so we put in like, we can raise up like another million or two. Uh, and so the good news is that's all the money we raised. And so, uh, you yeah, know, we probably could have gone out and raised an A round and been all been diluted. But instead, uh, all the folks that were in early still own most of the company. And it's become a, a very successful, very valuable company.
0: Oh, that's but it, awesome. So sometimes you have to retrench, figure out what you want to do. If there's a pivot in there, there is. But if other people aren't finding the value, then hopefully the people that have already been in there can see and still believe in the CEO and believe in the team, which is what you talked about as being yep. important. Then you guys stuck behind that. And look what happened, man. We're able to overcome those barriers and grow it and, and find more value.
1: Yeah. No, it's like that's one of the, the, the things is invest in people. Um, you know, and a, and a good entrepreneur, first of all, It's got to be somebody that you can trust. It's got to be somebody that you want to work with over a period of time. Uh, And uh, adaptability, you know, there's one of my favorite bad movies is Heartbreak Ridge, and there's a bumper sticker there, you know, adapt, improvise, overcome. And that is the bumper sticker for an entrepreneur, adapt, improvise, overcome, Uh, because, you know, nothing ever happens the way your business plan says it's going to. And so, the successful entrepreneurs are the ones that go, oh, that sucks, sorry, now I'll try this. And they stay at it and keep working the problem.
0: It's pivot, 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 right? In your mind, you're pivoting more than the company actually is pivoting because you're always trying to reinvent yourself, especially in your own mind as an entrepreneur. And uh, I love that, adapt, improvise, and overcome. Instead of uh, waiting to hit the wall, you, hopefully you're doing that on a regular basis, challenging you, your teams, and that'll help you keep moving well, forward.
1: Yeah, well, let me give you a, a good personal story on that one. Actually, I wish it was my personal story, but it's a friend's personal story. I was having breakfast with a fellow named Bill Losey in New York uh, a number of years ago now. And I'd just seen that Pinterest had raised uh, you know another round of money. And I said, oh, congratulations. It's going really well. He goes, you know, it's funny. He goes, I've been in that for five years. He goes, for four years and nine months of that, I was going to write it off. I thought it was going nowhere he goes this was the it was the sixth or seventh pivot that finally caught mm. he goes he goes he goes so he said at any point if we'd all sort of lost faith you never would have heard of Pinterest he goes but it's only because like you know and and some of it was they had enough money in the bank it wasn't a huge amount but they managed it well and so they sort of had bought themselves the time to keep you know, keep working the problem until they figured it
0: out. And, you know, sometimes you're not going to define the problem right away. You think it's one way and you're going to kind of slowly maneuver once you learn about it. You've got to be in the space a long time. Uh, this one company that was doing that I was talking to today, um, and they, they were kind of going through the whole uh, big picture. And, and, and I, they told me that these are the three roadblocks we keep hitting and we've crossed the one barrier. And we're proving to everybody that we belong here. And I said, you know what? You're probably not going to know you're a business until about five years. So I said, in this plan, when you're talking to people, make sure they understand that you're going to be here for five years because it's going to take them that long for this tech to catch up to everybody else. You're so far advanced that the only way you're going to survive is by having a plan that's going to get you five years because then that's going to build traction and those clients are going to start dumping their money in because you're solving a big problem that right now is fear is preventing them from using you.
1: Well, you know, now behind this as an idea, one of the pieces of advice that I give to founders that they always resist. Um, most business plans, financial plans we get are priced for perfection. It's sort of, okay, everything's gonna go exactly according to plan and then I'm gonna raise an A round for $20 million and da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, so actually two bits of advice. One is, Be really specific about how you're going to use this money to get you to the point where you can raise an A round. You know, what are the milestones that you have to hit to be able to raise your next round of funding? Uh, And don't tell me how many months this is, tell me what you have to accomplish. But then the second thing is, and then hold back 20%, don't spend it all, hold back 20% because, you know, You'll, you, to your point, no, you'll have to actually, you know, reinvent the product at least once. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll you'll you know, you'll be just about ready to go, and then COVID hits. Uh, you'll and and it's like and and you you know the number one, two, and three rules of being a venture CEO is don't run out of cash. Yes. And so, you, you know, and they're always like, well, no, I need to have that money, I need to spend that money. It's like, and even the VC's like, yeah, spend it, spend it, spend it, but you always gotta have a little bit left in your back pocket. So you got that little bit more time to either go get a better deal in the next round or fix the product or get one more customer, Um, but don't plan on sort of running out of fumes and immediately stepping into an A round.
0: It almost seems like somewhere along the line of how um, the startups, when they first start and they're working through all of these uh, different problems, One of the things that I find that would be really helpful is if they had some financial planning, a way to better understand how the finance works. Because when you've been working your butt off for no money for the last year and a half or the last year, you go and you raise this big chunk of coin and then you think, man, I've made it. What you don't realize is that that's just the smallest part of your made it part You've got a lot of growth that you've got to get to, and you've got to be able to hit those other stages, and you've got to prove your model all the way through. And I wonder if there's – I've never seen it, but some small little – I don't know if it's a walkthrough, a coach, a presentation, something that just says, here, you've got 500000 store 100000 you can't touch that. <laughs> 400000 is all you've got to build your company for the next year. The hundred thousand that is basically going to sit in that bank account for the next ten years, and you're going to keep growing that twenty percent a year because you can't spend it. That's your emergency fund. Yep. Everything else, if you don't have it, it's gone. So you better work your ass off on that four hundred thousand.
1: Well, that's exactly the advice. That is exactly the advice I keep giving to people, and they keep pushing back
0: because
1: <laughs> so you know, true. Because, like I said, they want. If you give them five hundred thousand, they want to spend five hundred twenty-five thousand. Yep. And it's like, no, 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 like. Hold some back. It, uh,
0: this was a probably I don't know maybe eight ten years ago. Uh, there was a gentleman's name's uh, Chris Carter, um, big fan. He works at Schulich. He's bought and sold his company a few different times. Um, but he uh, he had this um, story where and a story or realism that he did. And what he said to the company was, he said, "Here, look, I'm going to give you two hundred thousand dollars, and I'm going to pay you personally money out of that money based on the amount of money you have left." In a year and the reason being is that he wanted them to build and grow and make revenues so that they would protect that two hundred thousand like it was the last two hundred thousand because yeah. he's gonna give them a percentage of that just as a bonus and if you've got nothing left you get nothing out of it but if you leave some money I'm gonna give you some of it and uh, outside of what you're being paid and I thought that that was pretty clever and the, the reason being is there's this mindset of stress that's driven from managing money or having to pay for bills and not knowing what's gonna happen in six months or eight months. And I think that if you can take away that stress of the finance without just saying, here's all these gobs of money, but managing it, I think that probably would allow that entrepreneur to be more active and being able to figure out ways to solve problems quicker, uh, you know, generate revenue and profitable faster versus saying, I got money in the bank. So let's try this and let's try this. There isn't that urgency. You
1: no, know, there's a lot of overfunded startups, particularly in, in the valley of the US, it, because having so much money takes away the urgency to solve problems. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you've got you know, a half million or a million, then you know, to your earlier point, you can solve one problem well, and you better solve it fast. Mm-hmm. If you've got 30 million bucks, you can sit around and think big thoughts about, well. So what do we to be when we grow up in? What do we do? Let's get an office, let's get marble on the floors. Yeah, you know, we're big guys, we need you know, company cars. Uh, and as an investor, it's, you know, um, way back in the early days of Silicon Valley, the first investment banking firm was Hamburg and Quist. And, you know, they, they invested directly and then, you know, also were bankers. But I was talking to one of the partners, George Quist, and what he said is we don't like to invest Uh, Until the entrepreneurs already put all of their own money into the company. So we invest after they've mortgaged their house, maxed their credit cards, you know, broken into the kids piggy banks. Hmm. And when they sort of fully understand that their life will be a smoking hole in the ground if they fail, then we'll put money
0: in. Yeah. And that creates an urgency. Yeah. It's fire. It lights a fire on your ass because you don't want to go back to where you didn't want to be. Right. So right. I, I like I always say myself, I'm living on the brink of destruction every day because mm-hmm. if I don't have something kicking me in the butt, uh, what's going to drive me to wake up and do something more tomorrow? And uh, I literally been thinking about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. And one of them was what creates an urgency? Why do people say I got to launch this next week? I'm like, one you can't even feasibly do it in a week but why do you got to launch next week you've got like four weeks why don't you do it in four weeks and what I liked about the the urgency of creating a date that's not achievable is that you will work harder to achieve it regardless of anything you've put behind it there might not be nothing right you might open the door and it's achieved and that's it you're like there's nothing here I thought you were like had billions of ad spend dollars you what you didn't have that So it's the it's the fact that the urgency creates you to work harder, your teams to combine together to find the solution and make it work. So I think we always have to create an urgency. It seems to be the only way that gets the light going and gets everybody moving forward quicker.
1: uh, You know, what what you're bringing up uh, triggers another thought, um, which is the why now? Yeah, because so the other sort of dirty little secret of investors is. VCs have a no-cost option on your company. Um, you know, you come in and say, oh, that is a great plan. Oh, gee, that's really nice. And you say, oh, I'm gonna do this and this and this. Great. So come back when you do this and this, and then show me again. And you come back and say, okay, well, I did, I did these things. Oh, that's great. What, what do you do next? Oh, we're gonna sell this customer. We can think we can sell that company. Cool, tell you what. So after you talk to those guys, come back and see me again. And so, you know, a lot of VCs, what they're doing is they're saying, all right, just, you know, you keep building the company on your dime, and it's like we're playing poker, and the entrepreneur has got to, like, keep anteing and putting money in, and the VC only has to decide if they're going to put money in after they see the cards. Mm. Uh, and so one of the things that entrepreneurs need to really think about is that, you know, in the classic, you know, or else is, and I have a term sheet, you know, and so if you want to play, you got to write the check now. But they need to sort of be conscious of why they need to do this right now, but also why does an investor need to come to the table now? Why is it different? Why should the investor not wait longer to see more, see more of the developments?
0: No, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. uh, And you're right. It's, it's um, mitigating. Is it, if I mitigate the risk by, doing all of these things, does that mean they're gonna ask for more things? Or if I prove this, will they jump in? So how do I create enough urgency that we're mutually meeting in the middle and their dollars are gonna help us strive f- further and faster, but I'm not gonna get pushed to, hey, can you do this thing for me as well, which eats away another three months, and then maybe they choose not to because they had found another company that was on a higher growth trajectory. Yeah,
1: well, you know, a classic example these kind of asymmetrical economies um, is in the pharmaceutical industry. And so, you know, it only makes a headline when some little biotech company is sold for $300 million to Amgen. But what's happening is, and like so probably $20 billion was invested. And most of those companies failed. But the one that succeeded, those, that company got a huge return. From the big company side, it's like, okay, as opposed to me taking on the risk of, Developing all these drugs and seeing what'll work, what'll get through stage three FDA trials, whatever. I'll just wait and I'll buy. I'll I'll pay. I'll pay a premium for the winners. But but it's now a no risk deal because oh it's already done. It works. It's already approved. So fine. So I'll just pay more for it and then I'll overcharge the consumers. But you know. But but, but that is a you know the same model works by the way in oil. Uh, um, you know the the the, his, the historic Wild catter out with his burrow in the desert. He takes all the risk. And if he fails, you know, his bones bleach in the desert. Nobody ever sees him except for the vultures. But if he succeeds, he gets rich and a big oil company pays him for the claim he found. But it's, but it's like few successes, huge payouts and a lot of other stuff just gets washed out.
0: No, I like that. And, uh, I think that in time there's a lot of learning that comes through this. And I'm going to say that the first time you did it to the second business, to the third business, each time is going to be a little bit different and you're going to get different people coming after you and different ways to solve problems and different money thrown at different times. It'll never work out to be the exact exact same pattern the first time, the second time or the third time. Um, And I guess that's what makes business exciting. Uh, I got to, I want to do one thing, which I think will be a little bit different. Uh, We're going to call this rapid fire. So, I'm going to ask you uh, a bunch of quick questions, okay. just rapid fire and answer. No thought, just boom. And then uh, that way we, we solve some of the other questions. And then I got one last big question for you. Right. How's that work? Go. All right. Uh, how many companies or dollars do you invest per year?
1: Directly, I probably do five or six companies uh, via the various funds of where I work in. It's maybe another $20 million a year.
0: Perfect. Do you do follow-up investments and how much of the portfolio percentage-wise? Uh,
1: yes. Uh, and that, that's something I didn't start out intending to do follow-on investments, but I realized my good companies would need follow-on. Um, it's probably a third.
0: Okay. I like it. Uh, any notable companies that you have in your portfolio that you want to share that are worth the two seconds to answer?
1: Uh, a kid's book about, it's a new business model book publishing company and it made the investment early and then it came out just in time and, and the, it's parents, it's, it's books to help parents have tough conversations with their kids. Uh, it came out, but, you know, the it already launched and then COVID came. And we did a COVID book, gave it away for free to build a database. And then uh, the founder, who is biracial, wrote a brilliant book on racism, uh, just in time for the Black Lives Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it was the number one book on Amazon. And so the company has just exploded.
0: Awesome. I love it. Uh, any verticals you focus on specifically?
1: Uh, our company is Haran Media Tech Advisors. So... We started out doing mostly media, ad technology, things like that.
0: Uh, lately, we've been doing
1: a lot of consumer products.
0: Consumer, okay. Uh, do you lead rounds?
1: No, not really. I mean, through some of the funds we work with, we do, but individually, no. Do you take board seats? Occasionally. Uh, t- you know, t- my time is a scarce resource. So I've got a f- yeah, I do some, but not typically.
0: Uh, What other things outside of money do you do to help your startup companies that you invest Uh,
1: in? Yeah, we talk, we have, we call the bat phone. It's like, you know I mean? So for a lot of them, it's, uh, you know, it's everything from sort of introductions, it's uh, to, you know, to other funding. So we're helping them raise another round. It's meeting customers and partners, uh, find people.
0: Do you have any preferred terms?
1: Uh, Not really. Done some priced rounds lately, which is good, but I'd say the most common terms are convertible notes.
0: Okay, that's the uh, actually one last question. One thing that nobody will know about you that you want to share?
1: They don't know it about me because I didn't want to share it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: One notable thing. One thing like, <laughs> I always use I can hold my breath for three minutes underwater. There's something crazy that people will be like, that's amazing. Uh,
1: uh, I have non-intersecting circles of friends. And when they when they periodically, so I'm a professional photographer, and I do a lot of stuff uh, in the outdoors and environmental, uh, you know, I lead national outings for the Sierra Club. I and through uh, social media periodically, the circles intersect, and it's like so, so. The CEO of one of my companies out of Palo Alto was out with a fly fishing guide, and all of a sudden the fly goes, "Oh, you know Peter Haran? He goes, and, and Chris goes, "Yeah." He goes, "How do you know Peter? Oh, because he does. He, I saw a picture he took of this mountain, and da da da. And Chris is like, "Oh, well, he's on my board of directors." But it was sort of these two people that sort of. Yeah, it was like a random harmonic convergence of stuff. But like I said, it's like and sometimes I'll see these like discussions where it's like, oh, they these people these people actually knew who the other one was. This would be a really fun conversation. (laughs) But they sort of bumped into each other because I've got like these sort of random, non-contiguous circles.
0: I love it. Well, that's what happens when you're connected and talking to a lot of people and helping a lot of people. So that's awesome. So the last final question that I have for you today is. If you have a crystal ball, what do you see happening in the next 12 to 36 months in the investment community or the startup community? Is there a specific vertical that you think things are gonna really start to blow up in? Uh, do you think VCs um, are gonna have a lot of money, and they're gonna start bumping that up and dumping that all in, in 12 months? Where do you kinda of see the, that scale of things happening over the next 12 to 36? You know,
1: I think things that are enabling technologies for remote work, remote education, remote medicine, uh, apps are fine, but the stuff that's actually at the plumbing level is, you know, tends to be really interesting. Um, I think things that are physical dependent, uh, I have, like things around commercial. I think commercial real estate is ripe for a fall. Um, you know, not a big surprise there, but I think you know there will be vacancies and business closures and i think the reits with commercial real estate will have a big problem um like i said i think it's uh, you know i'm old enough to have gone through a number of these downturns and when you're in the middle of it it always seems like it's it's the worst ever and it'll never end you know um and it always does end uh and uh it um so it's sort of, you know, like when we got through the nuclear winter in 2001-2002, like the analogy I kept using with my team is, okay, look, it's like we're on a life raft and we're floating and someday a boat's going to come by and rescue us. We don't know what day. Our job is to be alive when it comes by. And so, you know, for startups right now, it's, hey, get through this. It'll end. You just got to be alive when it ends. And then try to figure out how you can get a disproportionate advantage, you know, when the recovery happens.
0: I love it. Well, Peter, I want to say thank you very much for your time today. It was brilliant. Uh, I learned a ton, and as I always do, I took a ton of notes, and uh, I I can say that uh, there's a ton of great um, lines here that I'm going to utilize somewhere (laughs) in my day, Uh, but I do appreciate all the insights, all the information. I'm sure the audience as well will appreciate it, everybody that's online today or when we do publish it. And to end it, I want to give you the last word. So any last thing you want to share to the startup or investment community, um, and it's over to you.
1: Well, what I'll go back to is in the early days when I decided I wanted to work in technology, everybody thought it was a terrible idea. And so one of the principal things to take away is, do this because you love it, because you need to do it, not because you think it's an easy path to getting rich. Uh, it's like it's like you do this because it's like an itch you gotta scratch it's like no no, it pisses me off there's this problem I know I could do this and when you feel that that's why you do it uh, people that sort of get into it just for the bucks it doesn't usually end well
0: I love it nope that's fantastic well I appreciate it All
1: right, Thank a lot you of hard...
0: much Peter we will be in touch and we're gonna let you know when uh, everything's ready to roll but thanks again for all of your Thank insights and you. in your, in your, uh, your great lines and stories. As well,
1: <laughs> Thanks a lot. See you soon. Man,
0: You man. bet. Thanks a lot. Well, we, just, uh, we were just on with Peter Horan. And, man, that was amazing. That guy really dove into lots of great stories. Uh, I love the fact that we got to do some rapid-fire questions. Man, I think I'm going to do that from now on. I think that that was just a way better uh, way of looking at things. But what I really liked about some of the things he said, and of course you can go back to some of the lines, and I think that really makes a big difference, but uh, he mentioned one which was lemons ripen more often than peaches. And I might be paraphrasing that, but what I loved about this line is that when you are the diamond in the rough, you're the one that's working hard, you found this problem, and like he said at the end, it's all about being passionate, finding a problem and going after it really hard and making sure you succeed at it that's exactly with the lemons ripen more often than peaches. And you know what? Those lemons, you know, they're the sour ones. They got all the bad taste. And those are the ones that we're not sure of. But at the end, they're going to push through and they're going to persevere. Why? Because at the end of the day, you got to work hard and you got to find the problem, find that solution and make it happen. So I really love that about that part of it. He talked about a lot of great things that you kind of have to look at. He went through a lot, obviously, from uh, working back in his um pong days all the way through and you know what adapt improvise and overcome and i think that every day you got to look at life the same way not just in business and life everywhere and just adapt improvise and overcome so today's show i'm going to throw that out there that that's what this was about peter's message is adapt improvise and overcome so enjoy yourselves keep working hard And, uh, nothing's easy and we'll, uh, we'll see you guys at the next interview.